You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good to see you all. You braved the, another hurricane, apparently, of weather. So uh, for those who made it, I love you and glad you're here. For those who didn't make it, I still love you. I just wish you were here. So if you're watching, uh, uh, that's what's going on. Um, if you're new, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I want to welcome you. Super glad that you guys uh, are worshiping with us. Um, and we are starting a new series like we've talked about, and you may have seen on the thing is, oh, prayer. Really? Another series on prayer? Like, we are going to do another one on prayer? Why are we talking about prayer? Well, let me say this. Um, when Annette and I were dating, um, she came from a divorced family. So because she came from a divorced family, she had a lot of apprehensions when it came to getting married. She's like, I've seen the ugly, and I don't want to be a part of the ugly. So when we were having our pre-engagement counseling, you're like, isn't it called premarital? No, we had pre-engagement counseling to have that conversation. And then we had premarital counseling after that. There was one phrase that came up over and over and over again as we went through that. And the statement is this, communication is key. In a marriage, communication is so, so important to communicate where you are, what you're thinking, what you're going through, the expectations that you have, the expectations that you think that they can read your mind, they can't. You actually have to tell them what's going on in your heart. And it's so important that as I counsel every couple I get with, whether they've been married a long time uh, or they're just going to get married, I always talk about you have to have communication at the core of everything that you do. And without Having good communication, I'm just going to be really bold and say this, your marriage is doomed. It's over. There's just no way they're going to survive. It's a ship waiting to run itself into the rocks of frustration and hurt and pain and divorce. And you're like, Simon, you're saying absolutely nothing new to me. Uh, this makes sense. I understand this. Nothing you're saying is new. And, and I didn't think it was. I didn't think I was, I'm, I'm groundbreaking any information here. But the, here's the thing. We understand that when it comes to marriages and relationships like that, but the same holds water when it comes to our relationship with God. It absolutely holds the same. And the picture that he paints at times is actually that of a husband and a bride at different times in the Bible. And other times he paints this picture of a, a child and a parent and that relationship that's going on. Sometimes he even talks about a friendship of what that looks like and being involved in relationship with him. But at the core of any of these relationships is communication. And communication is the heart of depth, growth, and thriving in any kind of relationship that we want to have any fruit that comes out of. Kenneth Bowen, his book, A Handbook to Prayer, said this in his opening statement. Spiritual growth is impossible apart from the practice of prayer. Just as the key to quality relationships with other people is time spent in communication, so the key to a growing relationship with the personal God of heaven and earth is time invested in speaking to him in prayer and listening to his voice in scripture. Can I get an amen please on that statement? That is absolutely what we want to do. And so what I want to do over the next five to six weeks, we're still figuring out how many we're going to put in it. Um, we're going to look at conversations with God through different men and women in the Bible. That's all we're really going to do. And so as we've called this uh, portraits of um, 
uh, seeking God out, that's really what we called it, we're going to see what was going on in the context of that society at that time. What was going on in the life of the individual who was praying? What did they pray for? And how did God answer that? And my hope is as we look at all these different portraits of prayer in the Bible, we're going to start connecting to someone at some point with where we are in our walk. And the hope would be is that you can see that there is a God who loves and cares and wants us to engage him in all things. Because at the core of prayer, it's this very humble experience because you're admitting that you need help at some level in your life, that I can't do it and there is one who can and I will cry out to the one who can. So with that, today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Hannah. That is the prayer that we're going to look at today. And there's actually two prayers in this section, if you weren't aware of it. Uh, the first one is only about a sentence or two. And then the second prayer that we're going to look at is going to be much longer. So the first one revolves around the process and the hurt and the pain of Hannah's life and where she's at. And the second is going to be how she responds as God answers that prayer and what she does with that. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to pray, and then we're going to jump into the sermon. Fair? Fair. All right. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the fact that we can even come before the God of the universe in prayer. And not only can we come before you, that you desire us to come before you, that you desire us to engage you. Lord, as we look at prayer over the next five to six weeks, I ask that you would give us a clearer picture of what it means to be in relationship with you what it means to engage you, what it means to um, ask you to speak to us. And Lord, I ask that as we look at the life of Hannah this morning, that maybe we see part of where we are in our life. As we look at the pain and the frustration and the brokenness that maybe we're personally going through, that you would help us to see how she responds to it. And that we would take this godly woman's response and see that it's a picture of not only Israel, but a picture of ourselves. Holy Spirit, is there anything that you don't want me to say this morning, please take it from my notes, uh, take it from my mind, from my words, and may you be glorified in all things. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So what we want to do is first is just kind of a little bit of a background on what's going on. We're going to be, we're only going to really read two main verses today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, that's where we're going to be. And so to understand what's going on in the book of Samuel, um, we're just going to kind of like fly into where they are so you understand what's happening. So the reality is this, in the book of 1 Samuel, the nation's in a very interesting place. Um, they had, the, you know, Abraham and Isaac and all the sacrifices and then Joseph and then Egypt and then they grew really big and then they got freed from Egypt. They were enslaved and in bondage. Uh, God promised them uh, this land that they're going to have. They do the 40 years in the desert wandering around. And then they go in, they take the promised land, they have all the victories that are there, they divvy up the land, and now Israel is an actual people, but they're a lost people. They still have problems going on in who they are and their identity. 
The reality is, is that they're looking around at all the other nations. They're saying, we're this nation now, but we look very different than all the other nations. And, and their eyes are starting to wander to this desire to be like the other nations in some way. And the book of Samuel is going to show what happens when they desire that and the outcomes that come from that and how God's going to ultimately use that even to bless them in that process. And so this is where we find ourselves but yet we zoom in into one family, into one woman. And so that seems weird as we're talking about this nation of Israel and what God's doing. Why would he zoom in to this one family? Well, he does that because they are a micro expression of what's happening on a macro level with Israel, right? So you look at their, their hurts and their pains and their desires and their wants, and that's what makes the Bible so beautiful is it zooms into Hannah's life and it shows what's happening with the entire nation. And that's, that's really the idea all the time. As we zoom in, we can get the bigger zoomed out picture of what's happening. So my first point is going to be the culture's values. So we need to know what's going on in this story for these prayers to even make sense as we read them. So we have this family that God's going to show us this picture in. The husband's name is Elchen, and the two wives, by the way, anytime it starts with, and he had two wives, there's going to be problems. It never, ever, 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 ever goes well when that statement follows. And he had many wives, so he means he had many, many problems because the Bible's not condoning this idea. It's saying this is what's happening, and guess what? There's all these problems that come from it, and that holds water with this as well. So the first wife's name is Hannah, and the, the second wife's name is Panina. Uh, Panina was able to have children, not Panini, Panina, uh, and Hannah was not able to. So right off the bat, we take a look at this life, and there is friction right off the bat, isn't there? There's already a problem that's arise. It's like we live in a broken, fallen world and things don't go the way we want them to. It's almost like that, right? Well, that's exactly what's happening. And so what we see is that Hannah is looking around at her situation. What does she start doing? There's this comparing game going on, isn't there? Well, she has this and I have that and I want that. That's not right. That's not fair. And what we see is that there's this wanting and there's this desire thinking that there's going to be made some kind of completeness in her life that will bring the joy that she desires so deeply. This woman's personal life is very difficult. She is wrestling through her identity. She's wrestling through her worth and her value. Anyone relate to any of those things ever in your life? I, see, I, I think we can relate to, to this idea that there is this deep desire and passion that she has. She can't, she can't have it. I think we've all experienced that at some level. And there's uh, a draw of emotions, of pain, of struggle, of frustration. We've all felt that at times. Yet we see in this event in Hannah's life, as she is wanting to find her identity and her worth in something other than God, it's parallel with what's happening with Israel at the exact same time, that they are trying to find their worth and their value in something other than God, which is why they're unsatisfied and they're looking elsewhere. See, 
God said, I will be your God and you will be my people in Exodus. That's it. There was no other things like, I will be good enough for you and you will be my people. And yet they started to want something else. For Hannah, she wanted children and couldn't have them. Now, you may think, oh, this is horrible that a woman's value isn't found in the, being able to have children. And, and I would agree with you, that's not. That's not where your value is found. And that's, that's actually the core of what we're talking about this morning. But it's not a bad desire. Right? Having children is not a bad desire to have. God actually blesses without ability to do that. He says, go be fruitful and multiply in Genesis, right? So we know that it says that. But we also know in this day and this age that there are struggles with fertility. That is a reality of a world that we exist in. It happened back then, and it's still happening now. And as I've counseled and talked with people that can't, it is heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. But you may need to understand that culturally, though you may not understand why there is so much value put on that, I want to give a little bit of an explanation so you can understand why this is weighing so hard on her and those around. So the ability to have children was huge in a way that women had an ability to contribute to the nation and to the society that no one else could. So they had this way of doing that, and that was having children. So if we were going to see, see success and survival for a nation, having lots of kids actually makes that happen. And so um, you look at China and Japan as they actually had limitations on how many kids you could have, right? Um, if you know anything about where they are right now, they're in a very, very desperate situation because they don't have enough people to take care of the next generation. So if you don't have kids, you don't have a nation. Ultimately, it will not last. It will not be able to sustain, sustain itself. And so we see that going on, but even on just a more regular basis, more kids means more workers. More workers mean that more food comes in. More food coming in maybe means that you have excess, which is you can actually have more money that you would then produce in that area. And as you had more children, that would then take care of you in your old age. Maybe some of us are thinking about that right now, that as I get older, who's going to take care of me? Well, if you have lots of children and they have land, and they have property, and they have money, guess who's going to be taken care of and secure? You are. Now, just even going outside of that, um, the larger your nation gets, the more of a target you have on your back, right? So what do you need to defend that nation? You need a military. You need an army. If you have more children, you can have, actually have an army base. And so what you see is that all of this is how women were able to contribute to that society and have a prominent role, and that there was an honor to have children. The culture knew it. The culture accepted it. The culture promoted that. And if you could bring this to your people, then you were of value. And if not, according to the culture you were really kind of taking up space and weren't contributing in a way that was going to be helpful. And this is where we find Hannah. This is the situation that she's in. So Elkin and her husband would go yearly to worship God. So he was a believer. He'd go to Jerusalem. They, they'd take this trip to bring their sacrifice to God. And as he saw his wife, who was um, not comforted, what they would do is they'd take their sacrifice of an animal and they'd give it to the priest and they'd take some and they'd give back some of the meat and then they would give that and they would eat that. And so what would happen was, is he would give uh, meat to Peninnah and the, the children that she had but then because he wanted to show and comfort his wife, his other wife, he gave her a double portion of whatever they had. 
How do you think Panenna responded to that? Really well, like, oh, I'm so happy for you. No! Because we're broken, sinful people. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it caused all sorts of jealousy. And what we would see is that because of that, the Bible tells us that she would mock her and ridicule her for not being able to have children. She just seems great. It's horrible. Could you imagine if, if this is how you went living and you're like, oh, that's just once. No, the Bible tells us in this section, year after year after year after year, this took place. This wasn't a month or a week. or a, it, it went on and on and on. And every time Panina would have a child, how do you think she felt? I don't have worth. I don't have value. I'm sure she felt worthless at times as everyone else was contributing. She's already struggling with that. Do you, do you think that maybe she was struggling with her relationship with God in that time? Anyone ever go through a really difficult time where you're hurting and you're like, you're like, I wonder if my relationship with God is solid. It, it, it struggles, doesn't it? You feel that. You start asking all these questions like, God, why is this happening to me? What's going on in my life right now? I don't understand. And if she's questioning it, maybe she's doing what we do as well. It's like, did I do something wrong, God? Are you, are you punishing me in some way because I screwed up? I didn't do the right thing? We play this game. You know how I know? Because I play this game too. I do the same thing. And then to have another person attack the very thing that you're struggling with and add fuel to the fire the Bible tells us how she responded. It says that she wept and did not eat. It's interesting, when you're in anguish and you're in pain and you're in loss and hurt, um, it, it's funny how you don't have a lot of responses that work really well. I remember when my dad passed away, my friends took an observation. They said, your vocabulary shrunk to like five words, maybe one max. Like, I just didn't have the words to say how I felt. And so the word that I would use all the time is, all you would say is, this sucks. This sucks. That's all I could say. I, I had no other word that could describe how I was feeling. And there gets to a point where it even goes one step further, where you don't actually even have any words. All you can do is weep. All you can do is be broken in that moment. And she didn't care about anything to the point where she wasn't even eating anymore. This is a broken person who's clearly battling with clinical depression. Like, that's what we're seeing in this moment. And in that moment, how she feels, and maybe you felt it, is utterly hopeless. This is my situation, and there's nothing I can do. Anyone here maybe feel like that today? Because Hannah's feeling like that. And maybe, just maybe, God has a word for you this morning about what that means and what that looks like. See, as, as Elkin tried to comfort her with the extra portion, he would say, isn't my love worth more than 10 sons? Well, it's nice that he loves her, but do you see what's going on? Again, this is culture talking. This is culture speaking into that. 
If you're loved by a man, if you're loved by someone else, then you'll be complete. Then you'll be satisfied. It's like, it's just, if it's not the kid thing, it's this love thing. It just, it keeps going back and forth. Do you feel like this in your life in some way? Do you feel cheated in life? Are you looking at God and asking, why is this happening to me? Why is the thing I desire not being given to me? And I'll just ask this question. Are you looking at culture to tell you what will bring you joy and value and worth? Is that what you're looking towards? See, I think, I think Hannah's a great reflection of all of us at some level at some time. Well, what does Hannah do? It's a good response to how we should respond. My second point is this. She stands up. It's the Bible... As I read the Bible, I, if, it's in, if, if it is truly inspired by God and every word is the breath of God that, that it tells us, then every word is very important, isn't it? And it seems weird at times when you read the Bible and there are these little weird statements. You're like, and she stood up. Some, some say uh, she rose or stood up, depending on your translation. That's the same idea. You're like, why is that? Of course she, she's eating food. Eventually, you have to get up. You have to get up to go someplace. So why is it make it a point to say, and she stood up. Let me say this. If I was to tell you, I put my foot down, what would you think? You know what I'm saying, right? Put my foot down. That enough's enough. I'm done. No more. See, we have these things in our culture that we know. That's exactly what's happening here with Hannah. Her standing up means something more. What she's saying is this. I'm no longer going to be passive in this. I'm no more just going to sit by and let all these things happen to me. I'm going to take action in my life. I'm standing up to take action. That's what I'm going to do. She's going to do something about it. I'm no longer going to let culture and the world determine my worth and my joy. So what does she do about her depression, her pain, her anguish, her anxiety, and all those things? What is the action that she takes? Point three, she turns to God and she prays. I love, even when you think you're like, see, she has to do something. Nope. <laughs> her doing something is giving up everything and turning to God in prayer. So what needed to happen was she needed to stop and she needed to turn to God to allow God to do what God was going to do in her life and be content with what God was going to give her. That's what she does first. She turns to God. She prays. And what she's trying to find purpose and fulfillment in other things will utterly crush you. It will not deliver on what it promises. It will not give you what you want. I don't care what that is. A friendship, a spouse, a job, a money, a toy, a, whatever shiny thing that you want, respect, power, honor, whatever. You, you fill in the blank. It will always let you down. It will never satisfy. Like if I only had children, have you had a child? Because they always let you down. Not mine, other kids. Not mine are perfect. They're fantastic. Right, guys? <laughs> but that's the point. We laugh because we know it's true. And, and, and that's 
what she's doing in this moment. She has brought all of her pain, all of her hardship, all this chasing after something else, what we would call an idol, other than God. And it's, and it's crazy that anything can be an idol, right? Even a good thing. There's nothing wrong with having kids. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting to enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with that. But when that comes a higher seat than the position of God, it becomes sinful and it becomes wrong. And it says in verse 10 that she wept bitterly. Um, a good definition would be out loud and loud. That would be a good way to imagine what she's going through. And what I like to say in this moment is what Hannah's doing is something I think that we all probably could take note on and maybe apply to our lives. She's doing work with God. That's what she's doing right now. She's doing the hard work of God of being, I'm going to be real. Sometimes we come to church and we think, oh, I have to have these really flowery prayers with big words and ramble on and talk in such a way that only the Lord understands thou language of such eloquence. No. It's like, just be real. Share your emotions. Share your feelings. Share, even when they're wrong. Like, ever like share your feelings and they're wrong and you're like, ah, it's probably the wrong way I should be feeling. Yeah, it probably is. But you're feeling that for a reason. Right now, Hannah's doing the hard work of God of working through her emotions, her pain, her anguish, her depression, and she's speaking loud and she's speaking through her tears. You know what's great about God? He can handle it. He can handle you being loud. He can handle your crying. He can handle your words. He can handle your emotions. Because I've come to find, as I've been in those moments as well, that God opens my eyes to where I'm at. And he shows me areas where maybe I've made things idols. And I've tried to find my worth and my value and my identity in something other than him. We don't have all the words to the prayer that she prays the first round here, but we do have this in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, you may read this, and at first glance, you're like, ah, she's doing the bartering prayer thing. She's making a deal with the Lord. Like, remember that show, let's make a deal. That's what it feels like at a certain level, doesn't it? She will do this if she gets what she wants. Well, that's, A, I'll just tell you this right off the bat, spoiler, that's not what's happening, okay? And it's not what God wants for us to interact with him. Like, well, God, if you get me out of this trouble... I, I, I don't know why everyone says this. I'll become a missionary in Africa. I don't know why that's always the natural landing spot, but it is for some reason. Go, it's far away and it's hard. Okay, well, they probably need Jesus too. That's okay. Um, or we'll do the thing like, well, Lord, uh, if you get me out of my financial problem, I'll tithe if you get me out of my financial problem. I'll do this if you do that. It's a tit for tat. It doesn't even, you know what it feels like? feels like a business transaction is what it feels like, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like a relationship at all. Like, that's how I deal with my cell phone provider. We don't have a nice close relationship. 
ever. But that's another conversation. But the reality is, is that that's a business transaction. Could you imagine if that is how you dealt with your friends? Well, I will do this nice thing for you, but you're in my pocket now and you owe me one and I'm going to cash in on that later. Do you think that would be a good relationship? Like if, okay, let's take another, let's say you did that with your spouse. Well, I'll do this if you do that. And you can fill in the blank on what the this and the that are. Is that, is that a relationship that you would maybe question the validity of the love and the care and the concern? You think you might question that a smidge? What's, that's, that's exactly what's happening. She's not doing that. What she's doing is this. She's rejecting culture and its values. That's what she's doing in that moment. I believe in this moment she was literally dying to herself. She was laying down the idol that she had in her life. And here's what the idol was. If I have children, I will have worth and value. That was the idol. It's very funny. Israel wanted a king. We could only have a king like the other nations. Then we'd be a good nation. Really sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? There's a parallel happening here. So this is like this idea of her dying to herself and laying, this is why it's so emotional. She's coming to the reality of, of where she was. This is the idea of repentance. There comes a point where you have to acknowledge what you're doing and you have to confess it. And you know what? There's regret and remorse in that, isn't there? When you truly understand your sin, when you truly bring it to God, it hurts. You feel it. And that's what's happening here. That's why it's emotional. She's saying finally, God, you are worth more than anything I could ever want. Any great thing, you are worth more. You're better than anything on this planet. I will find my worth and my value in you and you alone. And if you were to give me a child, I'm so content with you that I would give that child up I would give it to the temple. I would give it to the priest that, that, that I would allow that child to be in your service. And there's a lot going on there. But it really reminds me of this story of a guy named Abraham and his son Isaac, isn't it? You see how God keeps showing us the same story over and over again? Abraham showed how much he valued and loved God over his son She gave her idol to God. And here's what happened in her heart. In that moment, she changed from I want to have a child for me to I want to have a child for God. Let me phrase it differently. I want this child not to bring glory to me. I want this child to bring, bring glory to God. The focus has completely shifted. It's not about me and what I want. It's about God and who he is. That's what's happening in this moment. If it was a bargain, guess what? She wouldn't have been happy until she received what? Child, yeah, it's okay. These are always easy questions. I want you to feel good about yourself. I really do. Yeah, she wouldn't be happy until she got the thing that would make her happy. But that's not actually what happens. It says, ultimately, that she ate and her face was no longer sad. So she prays, she eats, and she's no longer sad. There's no child. 
How can she be happy? How can she not have sadness in her heart anymore? Well, what it means is that she has peace with God at that point. As she finally laid down the thing that she had put so much stock into, she laid it down. She had come to a place where her identity was found in her relationship with God and nothing else. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we see the sixth point is that she was satisfied. See, regardless of the outcome in her life now, she was satisfied with one simple fact. She was a child of God and was loved by him. And that was enough. She had been carrying this load on her back for years and years and years. And you know what she found? All it did was crush her. And what she did, I believe, is kind of summed up in the second part of verse 15. And she just says this. I have been, she's talking with Eli, and there's a whole story there that I'm not going to get into. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She's pouring out her soul. And I, and I would just ask, do you need to pour out your soul to God? Are there things in your heart and your soul right now that you need to really just lay out before the Lord? Do you need to do work with God? Maybe the thing that you've been carrying around for so long you think will bring you joy, satisfaction, worth, purpose, identity in. You know what that is. I don't. Is there something that you need to pour out to God today? Well, we see is she went home and Elkanan and her slept together and God remembered her. She had a son, and she named that son Samuel. I love the name. Is I have added, uh, I have asked for him and uh, from the Lord. That's what Samuel means. It's like it's a cool reminder. And then after the child was old enough and weaned, she took the child to Eli the priest and handed him over for service there. And then we get this second prayer from Hannah. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. You can use that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can take home. This is Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. 
For not by might shall a man prevail. The, the adversities of the Lord shall be broke. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's a lot going on in this prayer, and honestly, I could probably just spend another hour just breaking this down, but I'm not going to do that. But this prayer is sometimes referred to as Hannah's song, is how it's referred to. You know what's fun? People love to tell you how God has answered prayers. Have you ever had that happen? So God does something amazing. He's like, I got to tell you what God did. You ever been there? It's really, it's great. They're excited, they're worshiping God, and they're encouraging you about how great God is. This is why so many people have prayer journals. Anyone have a prayer journal in here? Raise your hand if you've got a prayer journal. Prayer journals are pretty awesome, and here's why. We pray a lot of prayers, and we forget a lot of things, don't we? But when you go back to your journal, you can watch how God has answered each and every one of those prayers in a very specific and unique and sometimes surprising way. And what does that allow us to do? Worship God more fully and engage him and tell others of the greatness of our God. Now, I'm not saying that that's exactly what we have here with Hannah, that she has a prayer journal that we've kind of tapped into, but it is a recorded account of what God did in her and her response to God's faithfulness to encourage us as we endure hardship as well. See, this prayer is dripping with praise and worship of God and solid theology all throughout it. And we see like, right from the bat, I'm just gonna kind of like fly through some of this. Her heart is full of joy towards God where it seemed like it was full of disappointment before, didn't it? She's a changed person. Everything's different now. Her horn, or sometimes it would be referred to as her strength, Horn and strength are, are uh, worked together, is lifted up in the Lord, not in her. Her strength is from the Lord, is where that comes from. The Lord has brought her salvation, not just from her situation, right? It's more than that. It's in her heart and soul as well. God has saved her from a slavery of trying to meet what the culture says is good. And she found that, that's, that, that master was a bad master and did not love and care for her. And so she proclaims this to those that are against her. Look at what God has done. Those who thought that God did not love me, did not care about me, did not value me. He loves me. She's protected by God. God the rock, as she would say, that's the idea of full of strength and protection. They would build fortresses out of stone, right? Because it's hard to get through them. And it says the proud must stop talking. The proud must stop being arrogant, for the Lord will judge everyone. What, why are the proud talking? Why are the proud arrogant? Look what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at how I've provided for myself. Saying, so you need to stop. And then she shifts to this upside-down way that God deals with the world. It's very different than how we would see it. And he uses these complete opposite things that are, that are happening. The mighty are broken, but the feeble or weak are strong. That seems upside-down. Those who eat will be starving. That doesn't make any sense. And those that are starving will be full. The childless will have children and the woman with children is now weak. Sounds very much like a sermon from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? 
Blessed are the meek. Sounds familiar? So here's what's being said there. Those who put their hope in themselves and their own ability will God, instead of God to provide for them, will be in ruin, i.e. the proud. That's what is being said. Yet those who admit that they need help, that they need a savior in the Lord, will have peace and joy and salvation and be cared for. That's what it's saying. And really, if you, if you kind of zoom into where we are today, we're talking this idea of works-based faith versus grace-based faith. That's what we're talking about. And so works-based would say, if I do all these things, I'm going to make God really happy. And if I make God really happy, then God will accept me. Then God will love me. And then I'll be great. Here's the problem. We can't meet God's perfect standard. We can't. We don't have it in ourselves. We don't have the ability. We're broken, sinful people. Anything that we do is still tainted by sin. Whereas a grace-based faith means this. It is not by anything that I've done. I have not earned it. I have not deserved it. It is solely about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of our Lord that he would shower us with anything in the person of Jesus Christ. Says that he lifts up the poor out of the dust. He brings the dead back to life. He makes the poor rich. He lifts those up who are needy and calls us to then sit with royalty. Do you see what he's saying? This idea of poor and dust and dead, needy. He's talking about who we are. She's talking about who we are uh, in our sin nature. We are broken. We are dead. We are lowly. We are in need because of our sin. It keeps us from God. It means that we are dead in our trespasses. Nothing that we can do can save us. But those that call out on the Lord for salvation will sit with royalty. What's he saying? What's she saying? You will be with me, with the king in my kingdom. That's that's what's being said here. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Until we can become humble, there is no salvation. Then in verse 10, she says this, which just seems so odd, and we'll talk about why it's odd here in a second. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Why is that weird? Why is this king thing mentioned? Like, what's the big deal about kings? Anyone? There's no king. What is she talking about? Why is she talking about this king, this anointed one? Like, what's going on? It says there will be a king, and he will be given strength, and he will help judge the earth, and this king will be exalted, that his horn, his strength will show up, and this king will be anointed. Now, that's weird, too. Who was anointed? Prophets and priests were anointed. There was no king, and kings weren't anointed. Like, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. But now we see that this king will be anointed. The idea of anointed means set, set aside for God's special purpose and need. And so we see that the prophets were doing that, the priests were doing that. Now there's going to be a king that's going to come that's going to be set aside for God's special purpose that's going to do something that's going to be impactful for the entire world. So Hannah is talking about this future king to be used by God. Ultimately, there would be this king named David that would come out. 
He would be the king that we would judge all kings by for the people of Israel. And then at some point, David would write a similar prayer to Hannah's about his goodness and his faithfulness and this king that would come. But it goes a little bit further because there's another, another prayer, another song that I want to read. You may know it, you may not, but I'm going to read it and then I'm going to do the big reveal at the end and so you can just try not to ruin it for your neighbors as you lean over and said, I know the Bible really well. In Luke 47, I'm sorry, <laughs> Luke 1, 47, that would have been weird. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts and their, of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offsprings forevermore. It sounds so much like Hannah's prayer, doesn't it? It just feels like it. The ideas and the themes and the thoughts are there. There's actually a spot that I actually feel like is quoted from Hannah's prayer because it is. Do you know who is actually praying this? Mary. This is what Mary sang, or Mary's song, or Mary's prayer after visiting Elizabeth. She proclaims the goodness of the king that's in her womb, Jesus. The Magnificat is what that's called. It's amazing that we start to see how this plays out. As Hannah is talking about these things that are going to happen about this future king, I think everyone kind of thinks, oh yeah, we're talking about Saul and David and all the kings that, that go after that. But she's also prophesying about this thing that's gonna happen in the future. And then we see the fulfillment of that as Mary, what's happening. And she starts singing about this future king and this future king is gonna be Jesus. So it goes beyond just God meeting the needs in Hannah's life and then goes into meeting the needs in her nation in Israel and then goes beyond that with Mary to meeting the needs of the entire world through this King Jesus Christ. Do you see the story that's being played out? This is why the Bible is the most beautiful book ever written and that is completely true. It's amazing. This is who our God is. This is what he's doing. This is why we always go through scripture in totality. And the mother of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, would bring this salvation that he would be this, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How crazy as Hannah is dealing with these things in her personal life, how we see how it has this ripple effect of what's going on in the world around us. That God likes to talk about what's happening in our lives so he can show us what he's doing. This song, this prayer of Hannah, this prayer of Mary, it's a song for us. That we would sit in it, that we would rest in it. Because God is a God who reverses who we are. He takes us and makes us new. He takes dead and brings back to life. He takes lost and he makes them found. He takes the poor and has them sit among royalty. And that's who we are as Christians now. 
anyone who would turn to him, he brings this peace. If you are looking for peace, there's two things happening here. Maybe you've never experienced the peace of God and the forgiveness of your sins, which is just anything in rebellion against God. That we can come before the Lord and we can confess our sins and take a humble state as we do business with God and that he brings peace and joy and satisfaction to our life. It does not guarantee the situation is going to change, does it? He never promises that. But that's, he promises a relationship with him. So that might be for you for the first time. It might be that you are a believer. You're a follower of God, just like Hannah, and you're in this situation. And it's hard. And you're struggling. And it's difficult. And you don't know what to do. And maybe you feel like giving up. I would just say, pour your soul out to God. Do business with God. Tell him how you feel. Tell him where you are. Be real with God. He wants you to be real with him. Confess your sins as he brings those to your mind. And know that you are loved and accepted by the God of the universe. That what we are going through right now is temporary. There's an entire eternity past this moment. But while you are here, you have purpose and you have value and have worth until God calls you home. And if there's anything that you remember today, and I want you to remember this, that God wants us to come to him with our life and he wants us to come to him with our pain and he wants us to know that he cares deeply about us. Let me pray.